the truth is, I wish I would have not taken out as many student loans as I did. I would encourage you not to take out student loans. That's kind of a mission I'm trying to get my students to avoid them at, at all costs because of the disaster they are, you know, currently in America. But, you know, unfortunately, um, I know all too well how they can be kind of a, a millstone around your neck for years to come. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode 176. This is Clark here along with my co-host Jace. Jace, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing great. How are you doing? Good. We just got off an interview tonight with a guy who net worth of 1.8, he and his wife and four kids are living on a sailboat and sailing around the world. He, he started a business. It was successful. He sold it. He took the money and now he's going to go sail for two years. Is that in your plans? It is not, but it was great to listen to him <laughs> describe his journey. And, you know, as much as I love the ocean, I, I think I would get really tired being at sea that much. Although I do, you know, I, I love cruises and at some point I think I'll take a, you know, longer extended cruise. But I, I, I'm i happy to, yeah, pay the money, let somebody else worry about the food, let somebody else worry about, you know, all the stuff, kind of want to just relax. And I don't really want to charter my own boat, that's for sure. <laughs> what about you? I don't know. I mean, it never was, but it sounded pretty fun talking to him. Two years is a long time, but I don't know. It sounded kind of fun, especially maybe later in life too. I think it sounds interesting. I could do it like a, a few day trip, like, you know, myself or like a few week trip by myself. I just don't know about that long. That's just a long time. But yeah, it'd be fun. Charter your own catamaran and just do it. <laughs> maybe that's what we should yeah. do, dude. Take the Millionaire's Podcast to the ocean on a boat. Yeah, there you go. Hosted in the Bahamas. So yeah. we have, this is episode 176. We have combined net worth of all the millionaires. We've interviewed over $500 million now. So about $507 million uh, people that have been interviewed. So pretty a, interesting. You know, I just say, man, half a billion dollars is pretty remarkable. Yeah. So in another, what, probably a couple of years here, we'll be at a billion dollars. Well, I mean, we always talk about it. One thing that surprised us is the amount of millionaires that don't pay off their home early even though they have the cash and the flexibility or I guess the money availability to do it. And you came across an article this week. It says 11 great reasons to carry a big, long mortgage. Um, so a few of the reasons, it says a mortgage won't stop you from building equity. A mortgage is cheap money. Mortgages allow you to invest more money and to invest it more quickly. Mortgages give you greater liquidity and flexibility. So just, it, I mean, it's interesting to look at some of these points and think about it. I mean, it's definitely something that has interested or that stood out to me. And I think we've talked about it a few times on the shows, but I mean, what, Jay, 75, 80% of our millionaires don't hurry to pay off their, their primary mortgage? Yeah. I mean, it, it's been staggering actually, I think, because I think there's this this connotation that millionaires are always out of debt and they don't have mortgages and they pay them off early. And the reality is we've we've found that not to be true. And in some cases, we've even had some retire with a mortgage, which I think is even more contrarian to maybe what we believed to be the norm. And it is interesting. And, and we do ask a lot of them, 
you know, the guy you just mentioned right now, he's, he, their primary residence that they did live in, they're renting it now, but they said they are keeping the mortgage. And I think we're finding that to be more and more the case uh, with some of these millionaires. Maybe, you know, I, I feel like as when we started the show, we didn't talk to really anybody that invested in Bitcoin, right? And most of the millionaires we talked to invested or, or paid off their mortgage early or, you know, were planning to. Whereas, I think now, you know, it's three years later, you know, going into fourth year. I wonder if it's just because of where the rates are and and crypto and these these things, have they evolved in in some of our millionaires' financial lives and minds? Maybe if rates were higher, they would pay it off uh, because a lot of them probably have refinanced or purchased in the last, you know, three to five years when rates have been at historic lows. So it'll be interesting to see and track, I think, over the next five years if we see any rate changes and is that change of the mindset on, on paying off a home early or not. I mean, obviously, there's several that, you know, enjoy the peace of mind uh, of having no mortgage, but there's others that say, hey, look, you know what? I can go make 3 to 5% at least on my money. So why put it into paying off a 3% mortgage? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense when, when it's 2 to 3% and you're working on a 13-year bull market too. It seems like the smart decision. So when interest rates are 5% and we have another correction, that'll be interesting to see what happens after that. Totally. Maybe it's a better use of money. So anyway, just something interesting uh, that we came across this week. Last week, we had an interesting interview with David. He he was an engineer, but is now started investing in self-storage real estate facilities, self-storage facilities. So interesting interview with him. His net worth is right around a million dollars. And again, background in engineering. Today's show, we have Jason, net worth of 625000 He works as a college professor and is primarily invested in, in the market and also has some home equity. He's 47 years old, and he got his first big boy job, as he calls it, at age 30 through, 33, excuse me, and grew up in a middle-class environment. So fun interview with him coming up. Let's talk real estate real quick. If you're interested in any multifamily syndication or commercial syndication opportunity, shoot us an email. We'll keep you posted on our current listings and we'll, we'll jump on a call to connect. Always fun to connect with our listeners. And if you bring us a deal, if you have a deal, if you know of somebody who's selling or looking to sell, obviously we'll give you a finder's fee for that. So we appreciate anybody who's reached out about that. So thanks again for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And without any further delay, let's get into episode 176 with Jason. Jason, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? I am a college professor in uh, the Northeast at a state university. Um, I teach in the state of Massachusetts. I'm 47 years old. I'm married with one child who's 20 months. My current net worth is about 600, as of today, is about $625,000. And that's broken up between home equity, primarily home equity and investments. And we can, I can get into more specifics if you'd like. You know, I wrote a lot of that stuff down, went through my personal capital account and looked at it, looked at everything and so forth to prepare for this. Yeah, so. totally. Let's get into it in just a second. But I know all of our listeners are, are going to be wondering, what do you teach? I teach communication studies, specifically political communication. So actually all the stuff with the election, I am one of the people that they talk to or uh, analyze. And I'm one of the few people in the country who actually loves politics. So yeah, <laughs> I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So let's let, let's get it. How did you become such a finance nerd if you're a college professor in political communications? Yeah, I mean it's I, it's always been kind of an interest of mine. I think when um, 
you know, I was in graduate school. I think I, I really started to think about my future and so forth. I mean, I started into the workforce fairly late. I didn't get my really first big boy job, if that's what you want to call it, until I was 33. So I was, you know, I had a series of small jobs, um, you know, some professional activities for a couple of years. I took a couple of years off from graduate school and worked in a professional environment, but, you know, didn't really start to make actual some substantive, substantive money until I really finished my PhD when I was about 33. Uh, but before that, I, I certainly followed the markets in the 90s. Um, I was in you know college at the time and, and everything. And I think I was also surrounded by people who had more money than I did. So I think I aspired to be, you know, to be them. My I grew up in a middle class environment, but you know, you wouldn't necessarily know it. Um, my parents lived in still live in a very, very modest house. My dad passed away a few months ago. But, um, you know, my parents never we never did a lot of travel. We never did a lot of that stuff when I was a kid. So um, I really didn't you know, I was always kind of jealous of some of the things that my my friends were doing, going to Disney World or, or those kinds of things. Um, my father was an alcoholic so that he probably spent a lot of money um, at the bars and everything. And but he was one of the most generous people I have ever had the good pleasure, probably the most generous person I've ever met in my life. So kind of weird combination. Yeah, totally. I'm sorry to hear about your father, but that's it's a pretty remarkable journey that you've been on to, to where you are now. Yeah. So let's take a little deep dive in, into the investments. You said $625,000. Home equity makes up how, how much of that and how much is in investments? So one hundred eighty is uh, in home equity. Uh, our house is valued about two, probably according to Zillow, two eighty five. Um, so it may be more like 185. Uh, and then we have about 600,000 in investments. So about 17,000 of that is my son's 529 plan. Um, we have another, about 23,000 or well, that's cash. So that's separate from investments, but, um, we have another kind of 18,000 in my wife's, uh, retirement plans. That's kind of a mixture of, uh, the Fidelity's total stock market index fund, and then a T row price T row price blue chip fund, and then the rest about five hundred and sixty thousand of that is mine in um, a Roth IRA, a four hundred one A, and a four hundred three B, and so that kind of you know is mixed around. Um, I have about ten percent in the total stock market index fund that's in my Roth IRA, about twelve percent in Vanguard small cap. Uh, index, uh, another 12% in Vanguard mid cap index, and then the rest of it, about 64%, 65% um, across Fidelity Growth, Fidelity Contra Fund, and the S&P Fidelity S&P 500 index fund. So across those three. So the most of it is weighted toward large cap stocks. And I tried to kind of create a portfolio that was, so because I don't have the total stock market index available to me in any of my retirement accounts at work. I tried to create somewhat of a replica of the total stock market index fund. Yeah, it's, it's quite the array that you have there. So has the portfolio always looked like that since you started investing? No, I in my early in my early days, um, you know, when I first started out, I what I wasn't at I didn't have the availability availability to be at Fidelity. I was at TIA-CREF and I switched probably about two years in just because I liked Fidelity's investments better. And in the first couple of years, I was actually invested in 
CIA Crafts uh, annuity products, which I found out I after learning more about them, I was not a, I'm not a fan of annuities. Um, and then when I switched to Fidelity, I tra- I opened up a 403B, and this is where I was going to try to play around with some international stuff. So I was in an emerging market market fund. I was in a Fidelity Canada fund for a couple of years, and they just weren't performing. I, for whatever reason, I kind of played around with that. And it wasn't about until about seven years ago when I just kind of created the, the mixture that I had now. So if I would have actually done this from the beginning, I'd probably have, I think I'd probably have probably about fifty to $100,000 more in my investments than what I do now. Gotcha. So just adding up your allocation here, you came up to, I think I, I just quickly was jotting them down over 800000 or so. So you have you have some debt. I do. Yes, I have. I have about a hundred thousand dollars in uh, my on my mortgage, and then we have about a hundred eighty thousand in student loans from uh, from my wife. So uh, we are in the middle of paying her loans off through the public service loan forgiveness program. Gotcha. So someone who's not familiar with that, including myself, tell us just a, a little bit about that and how that works. Sure. It's um, it was created in two thousand seven, and um, by the by the Democratic Congress and the Bush administration. And basically what it says is that if you work in public service and public service is defined as working for the government in some capacity, so it could be state, federal, local, or tribal, um, or working for a 5013C organization, you can, if you make 10 years of consistent payments and you are on an income-based repayment plan, that you can have your loans forgiven at the time. Now, in 2017 is when they started to kind of, you know, start the process for giving loans. And um, it has become somewhat problematic in the news. There are all kinds of stories about people who are applying, who are not getting it. You know, I think the the rate, the acceptance rate is right about, and now I think about one and a half to two percent. So, Tens of the thousands of people have applied and only a handful of people have gotten it. And I'm one, I'm actually one of the few people who did. So I actually have had my um, student loans forgiven um, back in 2018. Wow. And how much? About $57,000. Wow. So what are they looking for? Is there is there something that stands out above others or why do you think yours was accepted versus other applicants? Well, I think part of it is because I tend to be very, very meticulous in the records that I keep. You know, initially when I heard about the program, I thought it was just really for people who made a lot less money than I do. I actually thought I uh, I made too much money to qualify, um, and I actually wasn't on one of the qualifying payment plans for a number of years. But then when I got married to my wife, and about about 2014 2015, I switched to an income based repayment plan, and then. Thought I was going to, you know, continue paying my student loans for another because those payments prior would wouldn't have counted for public service loan forgiveness because they didn't they weren't the right kind of plan. But um, Congress, with the new tax law in 2018 and 2017, added kind of a, an addendum where they you could kind of get a mulligan on those previous payments. And what you had to do is you had to, you know, um, document that you had made 10 years of payments. You had to submit an application and and so forth. Uh, and it took a little bit of time. It probably took about four or five months of 
I think I reapplied on like five or six different occasions and um, finally was able to have them count those previous payments and the payments I'd been making um, consistently. But I'd, I'd never missed a payment. It was just something that was automatically done. Um, I've never taken a forbearance or, um, you know, uh, anything of that nature. So I just consistently made those payments and I was able to, you know, just read up on everything that I could find. And now I actually help people at my university and other people kind of help navigate the process because it can be an absolute nightmare trying to figure out how to do things. In fact, I was just talking with someone today about uh, helping them with their public service loan forgiveness application. Wow. So that 57 or 58,000 that was forgiven, was that the remainder of your student loan balance or was it just a portion of the remainder? Uh, no, it was the remainder of my student loan balance. I started with about $97,000 coming out of graduate school, and that was in 2006. So I paid off about $40,000 over $40,000 of principal over, you know, at 11, 12 year period. Yeah, yeah, good. So you, together with your wife's student loans, you guys had about 300 in student loans. Is that right? Yeah, pretty yeah, pretty close. Probably about two hundred eighty thousand, and um, that actually is kind of one of one of the reasons why this scared me or kind of you know um, shocked me into really kind of trying to get my financial life in order or really accelerating the process when we got married back in twenty twelve. We got married. We had done a long distance relationship for a couple of years. Um, and because of that, you know, I was flying back to Minnesota, which is our home state. Um, you know, we were going out, we were traveling internationally, we were, you know, doing all kinds of things, but lo and behold, I was also racking up a severe amount of credit card debt as well. So when we got married in August of 2012, you know, things continued on for a little bit, but I remember February of 2013, just kind of waking up and, and I kind of knew what the numbers were, but I actually sat down with them and just started to write them down. And at the time, I think we hadn't bought our house yet. So we had probably about two hundred and eighty to $290,000 in just debt from the student loans, credit cards, car, um, and some other things. And then the next year we bought a house and we hadn't really reduced the debt that much. So I think I calculated when we when we bought our house in... But September of 2014, we had about $470,000 in debt and and probably about, including the house, probably had about three hundred to $320,000 in, um, in assets. So we were $150,000 in the hole in about September of, uh, September of 2014, you know, probably a little earlier, we, you could certainly say we were hundred. Fifty, hundred, and sixty, depending on how you calculate it. I don't, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but so that did that freak you out? Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> to say the least. I was, <laughs> I was just like, how in Lord's name are we going to pay for a house, have a kid? Because my my wife and and I were looking to have children. We were, you know, we got, you know, we had both been married before, but we we were late to the party in terms of having children, and we were trying to have kids and. And trying to do all kinds of things at once instead of just focusing. And as you can probably imagine, trying to trying to do everything did not kind of led to inertia and, and nothing. And so kind of scared me into things. And, you know, I really started to reevaluate our finances and so forth. And it took a while for my for to get my wife on board, you know, because she was used to what we were kind of doing. And, 
and I was making her aware of the numbers. And I think when I did, it kind of scared her as well and, and so forth. And, and we haven't always seen eye to eye financially, but it's got to the point now where she, I think she really trusts me on the path that we're going because we've, we've made a, certainly I think 180 degree turnaround in, in where we are in our financial life. Yeah. Good for you. So just curious on, on that match in student loans, about 280 or so you said, right? What, what's the payment on that? How much are you guys paying a month? Um, we were paying combined because it's on it because we we're on income based repayment. We we're probably paying somewhere in the neighborhood of about twelve hundred dollars a month, which is right about the amount that we had for our mortgage. And you know, we were probably only pulling in, you know, combined the two of us at the time, probably six thousand, seven thousand dollars a month. So you know, we weren't at the time. I remember, you know, when we first started paying my wife's student loans, we weren't even meeting the interest. I mean, we weren't even we, we didn't even make the interest. But there are some there's some regulations within the income based repayment plan, which they kind of help you kind of subsidize the interest payments for a little bit until you can kind of work up to certain things with the different plan that we chose. So we weren't going deeper into debt, per se. But we certainly weren't making any progress. We weren't. Uh, and then when we you know, made more money and so forth, we um, had to pay more. And so got up to the point where we make about $1,200 a month, which you can imagine on a teacher's salary and right. another person, another teacher's salary. My wife was also a co- or was slash is a college professor. It's it's a, it's a bit tight. <laughs> it was a bit yeah, tight. Yeah, I mean, I just I, I want to be blunt because I just I'm so curious and I think other people are how, how did you not get discouraged, right? I mean, if you're paying 1200 bucks a month and you have 280 or 270 whatever it is, did you feel like you just weren't making progress? Um, I think what it, I think because I had lived with the student loans for a while and was counting on that public service loan forgiveness, I think we just kind of had to just I just kind of grinned and bear it. But I tell you, I thought of every scheme that you could think of. I still do to pay off my wife's student loans. Like, you know, if we just do this. So I, when we bought the house, and I still think about this, is that we could use that as forced savings, right? You pay down the, you pay down the house. And then if, if we ever need to, it's our back pocket for selling the home and we can wipe out the student loans, right? Um, so that is, that is still as, as if something happens, you know, that is a strategy that we could use. But I think it was just kind of grinning and bearing it, bearing it. I also started to teach a lot of extra courses. Um, I teach my, some of my colleagues asked me if I actually ever sleep and I'm not really sure. <laughs> I don't know if I've slept that much in the last decade because every single semester I'm teaching two extra classes on top of my student loan. So it's like I'm having, I have a second job and I've had that second job for basically the last decade, but it is, it is tiring. Plus any kind of work that I could extra duty that I could get at work, any advising, uh, any small little lecture, anything that I could do, I would probably pull in a few extra thousand dollars a year doing that. And that would go toward investments or, you know, other things that really to kind of help float the household for a while. Yeah. So speaking of investments, right. So you guys have 180, right? Right now in student loans outstanding. Yep. 180. And you have about 800,000 in assets, right? If you count the house, do you ever about think nine, about, we have about 900,000, oh, about 900, excuse uh, me. Yeah. Sorry. Do you so ever think about selling some of those or liquidating them and, and paying off the student loans and just, be, just being done with it all? 
Well, all of it is is in retirement accounts for the most part. And, you know, I don't have a lot of Roth in my, you know, so I could take out some of those payments. So it wouldn't, I have thought about that. If, if I was going to do anything, I, we would probably sell the house because we have enough equity and enough in cash, just probably clear everything, which we would start, you know, we, we would be free. But because my wife is basically six years into the process that, you know, those last four years where we're, we're kind of counting on that or some potential changes coming up to the uh, public service loan forgiveness program where one of the changes that is floated and looks like it, it may actually go through is that if you work for five years, you can get half of your loans forgiven. Or if you work a couple years, you can get a percentage. So um, I don't know if we'll get to the full 10 years. I, I'm hoping so to have them all forgiven, but I am anticipating that we all will have some of them forgiven. And it just on a basis, on a just kind of a budgetary kind of basis and looking at our future, it just seemed wiser to kind of put money to, into investments and just keep paying the student loans while we can. Yeah, because you do have a lot in your, I mean, you're at what, over 500000 in your retirement accounts, just you personally, yep. right? Yep. Yeah, Me it's pretty amazing. Have yeah. you been just out, have you just been feeding money to it every year since you started working or? Yeah, I mean, I started, I, I mean, I'm, I'm required by my by my union contract to I, I have when I started I had the option of taking a pension or doing a kind of a what we call the optional retirement plan which is basically a 401a and so I'm required to contribute a certain amount to that and then I you know started in 2008 I started I realized I could open up a 403b and just over time I started just with a hundred dollars every other paycheck and you know it just kind of grew and then Couple few years ago, I was able to kind of met for a couple of years. I was able to actually to max out the 403b in addition to the 401a and max out um, a Roth IRA. And part of it was because I was just teaching so much and taking so much so many duties. And my wife and I kind of have a you know how we budget our our household. She takes care of you know some of the basic bill, the, some of the basic things like food and you know buying clothes for our son or any kind of activities wants. And I kind of take care of the household bills. And I'm able to, with the extra classes, I'm able to put away enough money into our retirement accounts, and um, and all you know, it also helps that we've had an we had an eleven you know eleven year bull market, uh, which certainly has helped us over the last you know decade certainly. But I, I certainly just kind of just decided to, that I was going to you know force myself to save as much as I could. And, um, you know, the, the old rule, the first rule of personal finance, pay yourself first was something that I take to heart. So, yeah, I'm interested. You talk about b- building up the side classes. How does that work as a college professor? You're required probably to teach a minimum amount of credits, right? I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then do some research on the side, obviously. So if you, if you volunteer to teach more, you, you get additional money. Yes. So what happens is we have, there are actually at my university, there are two kind of we're governed by two separate contracts. We're governed by our normal kind of, you know, contract, which dictates my normal teaching load, which is 12 credits a semester, which is basically four classes. And then under a separate contract, it's called kind of our, uh, it's a continuing education contract. Full-time faculty are allowed to teach two extra courses per semester. So I've been doing that every year for the last decade. And that brings in about, not including summer teaching, that brings in about 20000 extra dollars a year. And then if I teach in the summer, 
I teach another couple classes and that brings in another about ten to fifteen thousand dollars depending on what's going on, plus the extra duty. So I probably bring in of just extra side work at the school with extra classes, I probably bring in about thirty to thirty-five thousand dollars a year on top of my normal salary. It's I don't recommend it for everyone because it's 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 hard. But you know, it, and it took a while for me to, to to start doing this. But I did it partly because um, I was going to see I was trying to see my wife, my my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. Uh, every month, I was flying out to Minnesota every month and taking her out to dinner and. And doing all this kind of going to like places like Belgium and Mexico and stuff like that. And that costs money. <laughs> I needed the money as much. Plus I was contributing to, <laughs> I was contributing to my, um, you know, my 403B and my other retirement accounts. I was trying to do everything, which looking back on it probably wasn't the best idea. I probably should have, there was probably something should have given. I should have, you know, maybe not have put all that money on credit cards, but. You know, there are you. One of the questions that I know you've asked in your interviews are some of the mistakes you've made. Certainly, that's probably one of the mistakes I made way back when. I would not recommend that route to most people. And if you're trying to to woo a, a partner, it's not. <laughs> hey, it worked out for you though. It did work out. Yeah, I mean, we've been together now over a decade, and we we were friends for a decade prior to that. So. We've known each other for 20 years. So, and she's a, she's a wonderful wife and mother and, and partner and, and so forth. So, That's awesome. um, but again, it was, it's not, it's not the way that you probably should do those kinds of things. So oh, that's awesome. So Jason, as you go forward here, where is the, the, the end? I mean, are you trying to get to a certain net worth or passive income goal as, as you approach your retirement years or, or is that kind of too far in the distant for you right now? No, I think, you know, I have, I've kind of gotten bitten by the bug of the financial independence movement. Um, you know, I spend, I'm pretty active on some of the boards like Choose of I, Facebook and listen to the podcasts and, and everything. And I, I've certainly gotten bit by the financial, personal finance bug. I've actually started doing some financial coaching on the side, you know, trying to help some teachers and everything. So, um, I have a, uh, my FI number is about 1.25 million. Um, I figure that's it. That is just about enough. And that's in today's dollars. So, um, and I, if things were to continue to cooperate with the market, we should hit that in about five years, but I don't anticipate to retire anytime soon. I'm not, I'm not an RE person. I'm not a retire early person. I love being a college professor. I don't know if I'll be at the same institution I'm at, but, um, one of the things that early retirees constantly worry about is the idea of insurance, you know, health insurance. And one of the provisions that we have that I can take advantage of is if I work for 20 years at my university, I could retire with full health benefits. So I would just be paying the, uh, the monthly, uh, payments that I'm, the, the monthly contributions I'm making now, which is about $400 a month. So I can retire, um, with, with full health benefits after about 20 years. Um, what I'd have to do is I'd have to leave my, one of my retirement accounts there. So there's enough money so they could take those, those monthly withdrawals out. And I'd have to, you know, probably annuitize that, that money. But that the draw of having good health care is something that will certainly keep me around, at least in this, in this position, probably for another six to seven years. So, but I mean, I, I love what I do. I, every day is different. You know, the kids keep me young. So, um, I hope I'm not working till I'm 75 or something like that. So like a couple of colleagues of mine, but they do it because, you know, they just love teaching and so forth. And I hope to be doing some other things, but. Yeah. 
No, you bring up an interesting point too that maybe we, we don't touch on enough just in general is figuring out that path for, for you individually. And it sounds like you've you've been able to kind of hone in on that and what that strategy looks like for you. And and it's not like a, a concrete mark, but I think a lot of times it's it's easy for us to lose sight of, you know, I know there's a, a guy, Bill Perkins, that's going around on, on, on media outlets right now talking about basically spending down to zero as, as you die. Basically, you want to write that last check. Yeah. And, and his whole point really is just that don't work forever to save a bunch of money and accumulate a bunch of money just to accumulate it because you'll never end up spending it or enjoy it or whatever and and lose out on some of the experiences or things that you might have been able to have or would have enjoyed having along the way. Not so much like, hey, yeah, write your last check at, at your deathbed kind of thing. But it sounds like you've got that pretty honed in and you're, I'm assuming your wife's on board with that as well. Yeah, she is. I don't think – I mean, I, I, again, I think my wife also we, – we both – we gain a lot of identity from our work. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I fully admit I bought the Kool-Aid of the college professor. You know, I actually have a jacket with, you know, the shoulder pads on or not the shoulder pads, but the, uh, the, sh- you know, the elbow pads on it and stuff like that. You know, I just don't, I don't have a pipe or anything like that, but you know, those, those scenes you see in movies and stuff like that, where the professor takes off his glasses and puts it in his mouth and says, you know, that's interesting. That's, <laughs> that's something I actually do in class all the time. We both value the idea of work and and doing something that we we really really value and, and give us you know purpose. You know, I think when you when you speak to the idea of you know, spending it down to to zero and so forth is certainly it's something we don't want to do. I mean, I, I I really want to leave a legacy for my son and for future generations. But this idea of slowing down and stuff like that is really. I, I really have kind of been captured by you probably heard of it, the slow fi movement. You know, um, you know, where people will are coast FI, you know, you get to a certain number, you put that in a calculator and you're like, hey, I'm financially independent. So if you didn't put another dime in. So we're pretty close to that number where if we didn't contribute another dime and we just, you know, retired at a normal retirement age, 65, 67, whatever it is, we'd be pretty close where we would we wouldn't have to work if we on top of my wife's Social Security and some other things. We'd be we'd be okay. We'd we'd be we'd be able to live a, a a good life. We would be able to live a really good life. Yeah, good for you. So, wh- where do you go from here in, in terms of your breakout of allocation? Do you have any plans to change it by real estate, get involved in small business, or anything like that? Or happy with where you're at in the markets, mostly index funds? Well, I've I've been I'm interested in the idea of real estate. I just don't want to be a, a landlord or anything like that. Or I haven't thought about it. I just am not I'm not very handy or anything like that. I know you can get a property manager. You know, I hear you know we could certainly do a cash out refi and try to buy some properties in our local area, a couple of properties, and they would cash flow. And um, I guess some of that scares me a little bit. So if I ever were to get involved in in real estate, which is something that I really have thought about, especially as we continue to build our wealth, you know, get involved where, you know, I'm an investor and so forth. And in a kind of a silent partner where you just, you know, I'll provide the cash. You just provide me, you know, checks or dividends or, or, you know, recoup my, my money when you sell the property or something like that. Um, I do a plan in the future as we, you know, get a little bit further on into this bull market. I'm a believer in secular trends, you know, meaning like, 
you know, long, long track records of a secular bull market or bear market. And I still think the U.S. is in a secular bull. So an example would be a secular bull that which you guys are probably familiar with it was from 1982 to 2000, where the stock market went up on average, I think it was 18 percent over that, that time period. And we had we've had a similar a couple similar periods. And I think we were we're in the middle of one right now. I think we're coming to the end. We're kind of in the late innings, but we still have a few more years left. And then as we switch out of that, I will probably invest more into an international, a little more international allocation. The only reason I don't go back to more international is because the choices that I have in my accounts are really not that good. And uh, and I also read JL Collins' Simple Path to Wealth, and he does a really good job of making the case that you don't necessarily need an international allocation because so many American companies are international. So why put that in there? But I do think that I will switch to 15, 20% of some kind of global stock market index fund or something like that. Total total market index fund. Yeah. Hey man, look, I'm with you on the international. We told, we told Chris Hogan that when he was on the show a few yeah. weeks ago, we were like, look, man, you're telling everyone to get 25% in international, but international has been like 5% in the last 20 years. Yeah. It's, it's been, it, it really hasn't been good. And I know, you know, Dave Ramsey says on his shows when the market turns, you know, international does make up for it. And that is true. You know, that's where that, you know, you go into those long periods or potential long periods of, you know, slow growth or, you know, where the market in, in the U.S. is basically, it's not going down, it's actually going sideways. So if you look at the, you know, the late 60s and, and 70s, you know, the market for the most part just, you know, it would go down, it would go up, it would go down, it would go up, but it was really going sideways the entire time if you look at, you know, from where it started to the end where it started to shoot up in 1982 and the same right. thing, the 2000s and stuff. So I think, you know, he's right about that, but that's so hard to predict. Totally. And then I, I agree with you on the fund options. You know, I was just, my wife and I were just looking at her options for retirement options at her company last night. And it's just, I mean, there's like 12 options or 10 options or something, eight, maybe even if you wanted equities. And it's just like, you know, luckily hers had just a total stock market index or an S&P. But beyond that, I mean, there was, it was really nothing good. Yeah. I don't, I don't have really any good international index but the fidelity growth has been a very very good fund for me since i since i bought it a few years ago it's it in fact it's one of the best it's like performing like 40 it's four it gained 40 percent over the last year i didn't i didn't i don't know how it's doing it but you know i'm gonna take it <laughs> so all right don't blame me at all there yeah so let's just jump into some some final rapid fire questions here, Jason. And then we'll end with some last words of advice. So, uh, what's been the most expensive car you've ever purchased? A few years ago, we bought a brand new Nissan Rogue, which we're still driving. So it's probably about twenty five thousand dollars. That's probably the most expensive we've ever bought. Brand new. Okay. What about uh, most expensive meal that you've paid personally paid for? Uh, we've had some really really good meals out. Um, we like doing like those three, four, five course dinners. So we've, we've dropped probably at least five, $600, you know, between the two of us, my wife and I on a, on kind of a date dinner and stuff like that. We haven't done that lately, but you know, we, we, we've certainly done that a couple bottles of wine and, you know, five course dinner at a very nice restaurant. So five, okay. six. Yeah. What items or experiences are worth spending more money on to you and what's not worth the money? I certainly think the idea of experiences, I'm a huge believer in international travel. I, you know, as I mentioned, I didn't get a chance to really travel as a kid. My parents and that we didn't really go on vacations. 
I went to Mexico. I was on a plane for the first time when I was 18 and I kind of got the international bug. Um, and then so, and I, one of the things that I love doing now about being a college professor is I take students abroad. So I've taken them to a couple different countries like South Africa and Greece. So, um, so certainly that, and then I really, I'm not into stuff. I, I think, you know, our house is full of stuff for my son and it's just the clutter kind of drives me a little crazy, but, um, yeah. he's two. So, yeah. Have you ever used a financial advisor? I have not. Um, I, I'm not opposed to a financial advisor. I've actually con- con- consulted with one or two, um, but I would probably be more interested in kind of just getting a second eye as to what we're doing and kind of developing a larger plan instead of just the investment part. That's probably what I need help, more help with the larger right. tangibles, you know, wills and, you know, guardianship and, and all that, uh, you know, potential planning, tax planning, that kind of stuff, I, which I don't, am not very good at. Yeah. Yeah. With you there. So as much as you're comfortable sharing here, what's been your range of, of household income through your working life? Well, since I got my, probably my big boy job, I would say that, you know, it was uh, with my ex-wife and stuff, we were probably making probably in the neighborhood of starting 80. You know, this was back in the mid 2000s. And now we're, um, we're in the 150 to 175 range, maybe 200, depending awesome. on how yeah. you calculated. Good, good income. Good for you guys. And what's your annual household spending? This is where we have a problem. We probably spend about $100,000 a year, and that's with student loans, daycare. We eat out a lot. We are what we did before the coronavirus and so forth. So we, we could we could pay that down a little bit. But um, that also involves a lot of extra mortgage payments and stuff as well. So, you know, that's that's probably where we've been averaging it. But that includes paying on extra debt and, and other kinds of things. Sure. Well. Yeah. Any books or product recommendations or websites, podcasts, anything you listen to that's been really beneficial, influential to you? Yeah, I think um, if I could just recommend a couple of things, certainly, you know, a lot of people have mentioned, you know, J.L. Collins book, The Simple Path to Wealth. Um, listen to a couple of different podcasts like Choose a Fi, um, you know, Stacking Benjamins, that kind of stuff. I would recommend, you know, for for a book, I will actually want to recommend a political book. And aside from mine, which you can go find, you know, on on the internet and stuff if you'd like, um, I've written a couple of books. But uh, the, there's a book on politics that I think everyone should read. It's called The Lover's Quarrel by Elvin Lim, E-L-V-I-N-L-I-M. He's a political scientist who is now teaching at the National University of Singapore, but he does a fabulous job of kind of outlining, you know, the two different lines of political thought that have really dominated American history. And if you want to understand a lot of the discord in America, I think it's a fabulous book to start with. It is it is such a great book. I love that book. I would assign it to all my classes if I could. Um, and then the other one is um, The 13 American Arguments, which is a another book that I assign all my students. It was written in 2008 and kind of gives you a very cursory overview of the fights and the arguments that we have in America, but does it in a really, really excellent kind of way. Um, yeah, cool. Those go outside financial stuff because I'm a, I'm really, really, again, big into politics and stuff like that. But I think we need to talk more about those things. And, and, and that's something that, you know, I'm, I know this is a financial podcast, but politics and money go hand in hand as you, as you both know. So no, it's interesting. I appreciate you sharing. So, so thank you. Um, so just, just wrapping up here, Jason, what mistakes did you make or what advice would you give to somebody who's maybe starting out in their twenties, thirties that wants to be a college professor? Is there something you glad you did or something you wish you would have done differently? 
Yeah, I mean, the truth is, I wish I would have not taken out as many student loans as I did. I could have lived on the stipend, you know, the stipends they give you for grad school. If you're most, a lot of people who are going to graduate school are given some kind of stipend by the university. So I was making like, I was only making like $15,000 a year. But, you know, that was enough for an apartment, ramen noodles and stuff like that. But I felt like I needed a somewhat of a lifestyle, the ability to go out, the ability to maybe, you know, go somewhere. And I took out the maximum amount of student loans. Now, I know that isn't true for a lot of people. They use it to live on and so forth. But if you could, I would encourage anybody who has, you know, some kind of stipend for graduate school or you can't. There are ways to go to grad school for free. And I've written a couple of blog posts about that. But I would encourage you not to take out student loans. That's kind of a mission I'm trying to get my students to to avoid them at, at all costs because of the disaster they are, you know, currently in America. But, you know, unfortunately, um, I know all too well how they can be kind of a, a millstone around your neck for years to come. Yeah, well, well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate you sharing and thanks for opening up. You know, it's not an easy thing to do. So I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for sharing. Everybody, again, that's Jason Networth of over $600,000 soon uh, to be a millionaire. Where can people find you or get a hold of you, Jason, if they want to learn more yeah. about you? If they can, if they would like, they can. Uh, I have a personal finance blog called Reaching Our Balance. So just go to reachingourbalance.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at J3Edwards if they wanted to come find me uh, or tweet at me, DM me or whatever. Um, and then, you know, if you wanted to, you can certainly probably find me on Facebook um, and so forth. But, um, so the, I would say the blog and, and Twitter would be the two most prominent places to find me. Awesome. Thanks again, Jason. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.